Our kids are in the service with us during most times of the year. uh, They have the option to go to children's church. And so what we've been doing this summer is taking a few moments to kind of set up the sermon uh, for them so that they can have a few things to think about as we kind of talk as adults. Of course, the sermon is always for them as well, but sometimes it can be a little bit over their heads. And so what we wanted to do is kind of take things down just a little bit to their level and ask you guys a couple of questions. So Kids, for you, have you ever had a play date where your parents have said, make sure someone doesn't get excluded? Make sure that you include the third person. You know why they say that? They say that because it's very easy to exclude people. It's very easy for one person to feel left out. And how does that feel at the end of the day? How does it feel when you get left out, when you feel like you're the third person and no one wants to play with you? How does that feel? I see some thumbs going like this. So that's right. It feels really, really terrible. Well, this morning we have a story about that person, about someone who feels left out. And maybe for us, we leave people out, we exclude them because we think maybe they dress funny. Maybe they talk funny. Maybe they come from a house that's not as nice as ours. There's something different about them. And this morning we read about a a girl who was very different. She was different because she wasn't as attractive as her sister. And what I want you to listen for, and I want you to come and tell me after the service, is why was she excluded and how did God treat her? How did God treat the one person in the story who was left out? And then think about this. Maybe this week, as you go back, to, go back to school, in your class, there'll be the new kid, the person who has come in from another town, the person on the playground that doesn't get to play the games that you get to play. Think about how God treats this little girl, and then think about how that might encourage you to treat that person in your school who feels left out. Now, this is our Old Testament reading. This is Genesis 29. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, Well, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. 
Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for each person in this room, those who are married, those who are married in great marriages, those who are married in really stinky ones, those who want to be married, those who will never be married, those whose marriages have dissolved. As we look at this passage that deals with a marriage that has a lot of problems, I pray that you would help us to see the problems not only in our own marriage, but in our own hearts and the things that we demand from our marriage. Lord, I pray that you would stand above our marriage, that you would be good to us, that you would be gracious to us, that you would show us how to relinquish control over our marriages or the marriage that we want or the marriage that we used to have. Let us give it to you. And Father, would you give us your love in return? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we met Jacob last week, and we saw that he was a bit of a a con artist. He had worked to be number one in his family, but it had backfired. And now he's on the run, or at least last week, he went on the run to escape Esau, because Esau vowed that he was going to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac was dead, Isaac their father, because he had tricked him out of everything that was important, his birthright, his inheritance, and now he was going to have to serve Jacob. So he, th- he vows to kill him, and so Jacob takes off. His mother, Rachel, was also a bit of a schemer, and so he tells Jacob where to go, tells him to go to her family, to her brother Laban, who lives a few hundred miles away, and to seek refuge there, and to seek a wife there. And in this episode, we see one more example of how God steps into the lives of very unlikely people with grace and compassion. And we see the marriage that everyone wants, the marriage that everyone gets, and the marriage that everyone needs. We're going to look at this passage in those three ways. First of all, the marriage everyone wants. John Newton was a a slave ship captain before he became a Christian, and he's undoubtedly best known for his penning the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, he was also a pastor for many years, and in his premarital counseling, he would tell the young couples to be aware of and to be, guard, be on guard against the temptation to idolatry. That seems a pretty odd thing to say because we think of idolatry in terms of like totem poles and pagan rituals, but he meant something slightly different. He would tell them, you may think that your biggest problem 
is the prospect of a bad marriage, but it's equally dangerous. Equally dangerous is the prospect of a good marriage. He gave them this warning because we tend to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We tend to take a good thing like marriage and make it our means of happiness, our ultimate means of happiness. We can look at marriage and we can say, if I have that, then I'll know my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I'm significant. Then I will feel finally secure. So we make marriage or we make the idea of marriage or another significant relationship to be our source of salvation. Ernest Becker was a professor at Berkeley back in the 70s, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. And he says that this search for romantic love is actually the search for an apocalyptic romance. Like the Bible, he says that we we all must build our lives on something. And if, as Nietzsche says, that God is dead, then man must transcendentalize something else. He says... We still feel the need that our we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude. But if we no longer have God, how are we able to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, we now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. And needless to say, human beings can't give you that. Now Jacob and Leah learned this the hard way. They have their hopes absolutely crushed. Jacob meets Rachel at this well. He's coming into Laban's land, and he falls immediately head over heels for her. It's love at first sight. And so he's happy to agree, which was sort of customary as well, to work off this bridal dowry. He didn't have money with him, and so he said, I will agree to work for seven years for Rachel. But they seem to just disappear. They were but a moment because he loved loved her so much. But you see, he's a schemer. He's a con artist, but he's met his match in Laban. And Laban sees a way to solve two problems at once. He can use Jacob's skill and his labor to promote his business, to profit his farm. But also he can marry off his daughter, Leah, who no one wanted to marry. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Every commentary that you pick up says something a little bit different about this term, weak. She had cross eyes. She, uh, she had not bright eyes, which was valued by Oriental men at that time. She couldn't see very well. All of these different options for weak eyes. But in context, what's the narrator doing? He's comparing Leah to Rachel. He's comparing Leah, this beautiful person with a great form. And he's saying that Rachel was a swan and Leah was an ugly duckling. Rachel got all the boys' attention. 
She was easy on the eyes, whereas Leah was not, and even her father could see it. Even her father knew that no one was ever going to marry her, and so he had to hatch a seven-year plot to marry her off. Jacob works for seven years, and they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for Rachel. But Laban veils Leah, which is very customary, and gives her to Jacob after a night of heavy drinking and this feast, hoping that he'll consummate the marriage with Leah, and then he'll be stuck with her. Well, Jacob, as we read, ends up married to both because he renegotiates and says, I'll work another seven years for Rachel, and so now he's stuck with both wives. But the narrator lets him sort of disappear into the background, and he becomes sort of reduced to just a stud, that he's used as leverage for each sister, each sister to one-up one another, that he is only there to impregnate these women as they compete for his attention and compete in the family. And Leah, poor Leah, she's in misery because of the greed of the father and the manipulation of these men, she's thrown into almost a hellish existence. We see the marriage that everyone wants is this apocalyptic romance, this sense that we can be significant, that we can find our security if we can attach ourselves and be attached to another person that we love deeply. It doesn't work out for either Jacob or Leah or Rachel, for that matter. We need to see, secondly, the marriage that everyone gets. Leah understandably, has this big gaping hole inside of her. She's played second fiddle her whole life. Everyone looks at Rachel. Everyone pays a little bit more attention to Rachel. Every boy hangs on every word from Rachel's mouth. Undoubtedly, boys have struck up relationships with Leah only to get the inside track to Rachel. But Leah gets Jacob first. This Strapping man with a lot of promise. And what's his response after the first night of the honeymoon? Fury. He's enraged. He's been duped. And one more time, in the most demeaning way possible, Leah has learned that she'll never, ever be Rachel. But she has one more idea. Because marriage in that context was as much about bearing children and providing an heir as it was romantic love or a partnership. So she reasons, maybe Jacob, though he's interested sexually, romantically with Rachel, if I can bear him children, then he'll love me. And so she gets pregnant and begins to bear him children, boys no less. And every time she says, now my husband will love me. Now maybe I'll have meaning in life. Now maybe I'll be noticed. In one of the saddest passages in Scripture, she names the first one Reuben, which means I'm seen. She names the second one Simeon, which means I'm heard. She names the third one Levi, which means I'm attached. Leah's looking to marriage to have this apocalyptic significance in her life. She is looking at it. She believes this illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, that everything that's wrong with us will be healed and we'll live happily ever after. And one of the primary reasons that so many marriages fail and relationships end in heartbreak is because we demand too much from them. It's 
because we turn them into idols. We look for a savior in our spouse, and what we find is someone just as flawed and just as broken as us. Leah is looking for something that no human relationship is meant to bear. But what about Jacob? What's his experience? At all of the weddings that I attend or I officiate, after the bride walks down the aisle, it always happens. They look over and the groom and the bride sneak a look at one another. They smile at one another. And it's almost like they've heard this story and they're checking in to make sure it's the right person that's standing on the other side. But when they do that, when they steal that glance and it's just full of wedding day bliss, it's the happiest moment for most people of their life. And I wonder about that moment that's coming when they glance at the other person, and maybe it's eight months after, or maybe it's eight years later, and this time they take a much harder look at the other person. And they look into each other's eyes, and they realize that they haven't married the person that they thought. And whether you're married or not, you can understand this, because chances are good that you've been in a relationship that's been significant, and it's let you down. It's left, left you feeling numb. It's left you feeling depleted. And whoever it is that you love, what we have to see is that person is both Rachel and Leah. Leah and Rachel. You may love one more than the other, but they're wrapped up into the same person. Rachel is the one that you love, and you're sure that she will be your ticket to happiness. But you can't love Rachel. You can't be married to Rachel without also being married to Leah. Maybe you spend years trying to turn Leah into Rachel, and it leaves you disillusioned and feeling duped because you didn't want to marry Leah. You wanted to marry Rachel. And as you try to reform her, as you try to turn her into Rachel, you'll turn her actually into a shell of her former self. And of course, this tension between the love you have and the love that you want is just as difficult for women, because for all we know, Leah could have wanted to marry Esau. There could have been someone else that she wanted to marry, not Jacob. He's kind of a twerp. But when people fall in love, sure, they notice flaws in the other person. But at first, when you first start dating, these flaws are precious. They're these little quirks that make the other person more interesting, more colorful. Life is going to be so fun with this person. They're so funny. Well, he's a little bit messy, but it's good not to be uptight about things. Well, she's a bit focused on her appearance, but that means she'll look good for longer. You see, women marry men hoping that they will change, and men marry women, women hoping that they won't. Women generalizing here, of course. <laughs> women often think that they can reform their men from their frat house ways and that they can teach them to put the toilet seat down. And men expect their women will always look like the 25-year-old that they married. Maybe you fall for Rachel. Maybe you fall for this person. There's 95% of them that's great, and only 5% of them that kind of bothers you, that kind of irks you. But a day will come, whether it's eight months in or eight years in, where you discover that that 5% is taking up 95% of your energy. You marry Rachel, but you spend most of your time trying to fix and improve upon Leah. 
Leah knows that she's not Rachel. In fact, she spent her whole life trying to forget that. And now she has a marriage that reminds her of that constantly. And Jacob knows he's not Esau. He's played second string his whole life. And so he spent his whole life trying to usurp that and to be number one. And he thinks that marrying the perfect ten will finally change that. It will finally put him in the number one position. And so each is trying to milk that 95% for more and more and trying to get rid of the 5% that's not lovable. And it creates this constant tension and constant conflict. And it keeps people insecure and defensive in their marriages. I'm not arguing that every marriage is as screwed up as this one. But if we come into our marriages with this apocalyptic sense that this is where I will find meaning, or any other relationship, this is the marriage that we're going to get. The marriage that everyone wants, the marriage everyone gets, and finally the marriage that everyone needs. Apocalyptic romance is a problem because the heart longs for God. And if you try to turn your spouse into him, you'll crush them. You'll crush them under the weight of cosmically impossible expectations. So is there a solution? Is there a solution? Is there an end to this search for apocalyptic romance? Well, the unique claim of Christianity is that God is a lover, that he is madly in love with and in pursuit of each of you with all of your faults and with all of your sin. He pursues you, but he doesn't have all the insecurities and deficiencies that everyone else who's pursued you has. And so he is able to declare his love for you by laying down his life without expecting anything in return. You see, as we sacrifice in our relationships, we're always trying to get something. Not always, but we want something. It's quid pro quo. That's our default status. But what God does is he sends his son, not quid pro quo, he sends it for us. And only as we come to know God's love for us will we not look to our spouse as Savior, not look to our boss as Savior, not look to our parents as Savior, not look to our children as Savior. Only as we come to know that unconditional love that God has for each of us, that he is madly in love, that he is constantly pursuing, that he is constantly wanting to be with us, will we be freed and enabled to love others in a healthy way. Leah has three children, and each time she names them something different and something very self-referential. Now my husband will see me. Now my husband will hear me. Now my husband will attach himself to me. And how many spouses are trapped in that cycle in their marriage? If I could just do this, if I could be pretty enough, if I could be nice enough, if I could get the right job, then my spouse will see me. Then my spouse will know me. They'll attach themselves to me. She's looking to her husband to make herself whole until the very end. And something changes. Something changes with the very last one. She says, now my husband will love me three times. And then it says she conceived again. And this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Now that sounds a bit pietistic, but I don't mean it that way. What I mean is that finally she's not looking to her husband anymore for meaning. Finally, she's not looking to producing children for her source of significance in the world. 
finally she says, I'm going to praise the Lord with this child. And at that moment, she becomes whole. At that moment, Laban and Jacob and all the people who had used her and abused her fall away from her as means of significance. And she finally realizes not only that they can't save her, but no longer can they hurt her either. She's still not Rachel. She still has weak eyes. None of that has changed. What has changed? Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he came to her. You see, God throughout the Bible loves those who are unlovely that God brings the Messiah through this line of people who are the strangest bunch of misfits that you could ever imagine, that God pursues madly the person who is physically ugly just in the same way that he pursues someone who is physically beautiful according to our standards, to the poor, to the forgotten, to all of the not Rachels in this world, he says, you're beautiful to him. And the truth that transforms us is that God doesn't just love the 95% of you that everyone else seems to be okay with. God loves all of you, even the 5% that seems so unlovable, maybe even to yourself. The parts that you try to hide from others, the parts that you're insecure about, the parts that you feel deep buckets of shame about, God looks at you as a whole and says, I love you. I want to be with you forever. And get this, who's her fourth son? Well, it's Judah. Through Leah's line, not Rachel the beautiful, but through Leah the ugly, her line comes the Messiah. Judah's line is the line of Jesus. You see, not only does Jesus see you as beautiful, it's not just a whitewash, it's not just an illusion, but he actually begins to come inside and make you beautiful, that he changes you from the inside out. When you become a Christian, Jesus' life and death and resurrection becomes yours in total. You've been made new, and all of the sad and hurtful and shameful things that you've done or have been done to you begin to become untrue. They're still part of your story, and they still hurt. They're still real wounds, but they're not the whole story. They're not the end of the story. The end of the story is that if you're a Christian and you're in Jesus, that you will be remade fully, that you will become Rachel. But even in that process, even while you still have weak eyes and a weak moral conscience and weak everything, that God looks at you and absolutely is enraptured with you. That love is what transforms us and those that we love. You see, the point of the story, the point of the gospel is that you don't reform your own flaws. You don't get rid of your own flaws. You don't make yourself presentable and then go to God. And he says, welcome into my household. Jacob's ladder is not the ladder that you climb up to get to God, but it's the ladder that God drops down to earth and he descends and comes to you. We know that we can't get rid of someone else's flaws by demanding more of them. And that's not what Jesus does. It's actually exactly the reverse, that Jesus becomes the ladder on which you, in which God comes to you, and that God begins to make 
you beautiful. And friends, when we understand that, when we get the gospel, when we get the point of this story, you don't have to demand others to meet your needs anymore. You don't have to demand either that their behavior conforms to a certain standard before you love them. They're not put there to serve you and make you whole. That's what God is meant to do. And when you get get that freedom, when you give other people that freedom, imagine what it would look like. Imagine what it would look like to live like that, to think like that, to think that way about others' faults as well as your own. Imagine what it would be like to let others in your life live like that. Let's pray. Father, many of us, all of us in this room are not Rachel's, but many of us have really terrible stories to tell about how we've been made to feel that way, about how we've been shamed for our faults, about how the people in our lives that were supposed to lift us up and affirm us and make us beautiful have actually done exactly the opposite. There are lots of wounds, even if we dress them up on Sunday morning and we pretend that they're not there. And so, Father, I pray that privately, as we go about our lives this week, that you would step into our lives in a new way, that you would move close to us, that you would teach us to trust you, that you can come in to those wounded places and not hurt us further. Lord, I pray that you would let this community be a source of that healing for one another. Because whether we have suffered any significant social or psychological trauma, we're all broken, hurting people at times. And I pray that, Father, this community would be a safe place for those with doubts and a safe place for those with hurts. And Lord, I pray that you would do that and begin to do that even as we come to this table and as we confess our faith together. We pray in Jesus' name.